and maybe take this to my to my jacket to my this is high tech stuff right here wow look at that PJ. love it did you learn love that it. from squash tv yeah <laughs> secrets of the trade is that better yeah i think it'll be good i hope this isn't a metaphor of how the psa strung together i actually think this is exactly how the psa strung together is that right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's your fact gosh and that's your fact normally and here normally it's chewing gum we're going we're going up with this is up market we've got a sellotape pj's almost in a good mood how about that first time for everything <laughs> don't spoil it bill sorry spoil it. <laughs> yeah sorry all right here we go about to leave already packing come with me i'm not really asking we'll get away to a place where we don't know what about this this call is being recorded Fans, we are back for another edition of the Roundup, catching up on the weekly headlines, results, and news from the professional tour and college squash. I'm Connor Malley, and I'm joined by Bill Buckingham and PJ Paul Johnson. Boys, we're back. And this is Squash Week. We are in the heart of the season. So much going on. This is probably going to be a little bit longer than normal, so people should buckle up. But it's good to see you, boys. It's been a minute. Yeah, thanks, Connor. Just a slight... When I say hangover, I don't mean from a, from an alcohol standpoint, but just a crazy week in New York for the Tournament of Champions. An unbelievable squash throws up so many epic matches, has done over the years, and this year was no different with some quite outrageous performances. But so I'm now currently down in Philadelphia. I've come down to see a couple of players that I work with. I've got a little 10-day stint down here with them. Yeah, as you said, it's non-stop Mardi Gras squash. Sure <laughs> <laughs> And Bill... Look at you being so patient. Bill, I've never know, seen you be well, so quiet for so long. I know. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> quite the opposite of quite the opposite of you, PJ. I I am hungover also, but it is absolutely from alcohol, not from anything else. My one of my friends from college had a 60th birthday party and he rented out we thought he was renting out like just like a little section of a bar. He closed the whole bar, hmm. invited a hundred people, and it was open bar and order off the menu and just saw a bunch of like old college friends and people I hadn't seen in a long time. And a lot of people walking in and trying to figure who slept with who, when they slept with them, and now they're married to Jesus. who. And a lot of that, some people hiding in corners because they didn't want to see people because they knew they slept with them 40 years ago. And they're now they're with their husband, that type of thing. So it was a lot of drama. And then I, I got up this morning and actually played squash for the first time since November. Oh, dear. Wait a minute. So let me I, just let me just do some calculations here. So it was his 60th birthday, and it was your college mate. So that would make you around 61 next Friday. Oh my good grief! Oh a week God. a week oh from Friday, God. I'll be uh, last Friday. I will be 61, and I am feeling every bit. You remember how Norel Sherbini felt like in Game Two at the TOC against Hamami, <laughs> like where she like you felt like every. That's what my body feels like right now. My whole body, from my toes to my head. Let's also add, click into that a little bit where there's yeah. your chronological age, but your mm -hmm. biological age, Bill, you are for that age, pretty fit and pretty in shape, wouldn't you say? What would you say your biological age is? 59. 59, okay. <laughs> now, long, now, just there's another age, like maturity-wise, like maturity age, where are you at there? Six. Yeah, I think that's pushing it. That's pushing it. I'm not sure you're well, there. I yet. don't know. I, I'm not sure. I matured over the last week since I saw you, PJ. I was five when I saw you in, at the TOC. Now I'm six. So I'm, all I'm, right, I'm, all right. I'm pretty Aging good. But up. as fit as I am, and I am pretty fit for my age because I exercise all the time. And squash is a different animal, though. This is my body hurts so bad right now. Everything's stiff, hard. My calves hurt. My back hurts. I've also, I didn't tell you guys, I don't know if you guys know, I bought a weight bench last week. So I'm into weightlifting now. For the first time in my life, I've never lifted weights before, and that's so you can just stack up the beers instead of putting them in the garage. You can just leave them on the bench, and they're closer, <laughs> the real, closer to the kitchen. Yeah, PJ, how the, else are you going to get a six pack <laughs> in Bill's life? That, that's very good, Connor. No, the reason I'm doing it is because I am 61, so I'll turn 62 next year, and I do want to like develop my body because I'm going to retire when I'm 62, and I feel that I'm not going to wear a shirt a lot. I'm going to walk around shirtless quite a bit, and I don't want to be like embarrassed walking around shirtless. So that's why I'm weightlifting. Now. I think that's inevitable that you will be embarrassed walking around with no shirt. <laughs> but good luck, good luck. I admire the 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 desire to start looking after yourself at 61 years of age. It's good. It's all about vanity at this point. Yeah. So yeah, so I did look so much younger than any of the people at that party last night. Some of my guys who I went to college with, holy crap, they look terrible. Yeah, terrible. 
are they fans know. of the show or are you just is this no, where I, you... I mean they know me i told them last night they look terrible so i don't they care were if they hear it on a recording until they heard that they were <laughs> yeah exactly I was like... they're all bald they're all fat dude yeah. look in the mirror before you go out that's all yeah. I'm <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to be back it's sunday morning big football day ahead so i'm looking forward to this recording and i'm looking forward to laying on the couch and eating a lot of food and watching a lot of football and there's, like I said, we're in the heart of the season. So this is, there's a lot to cover. You want to give a little bit of the rundown and then I'll jump in before we. Sure. I think what, yeah, absolutely. I think what we're going to, we're going to look back at the TOC, the TOC, obviously the marquee event on the PSA tour. It's a week that everyone gets into. I have to say, I watch more of the TOC than any tournament of the season, unless I'm actually involved with the tournament in some way, shape or form. I watch highlights. I go on squash TV. I went and saw it in person stayed there the first weekend and watched just match after match. It's just, so we'll break that down. Talk about Sherbini, obviously, just because she was the star of the show. We'll talk about Ali Farag. Talk about some of the matches that happened in the lead up. Some of the sessions that were just pure drama. A little bit of Mohammed El Sherbagi drama, which you have to have that with every every tournament. What happened to Paul Call? How El Arabi and Kruin jumped up into the semis. Their first appearances on the big stage. Talk about coaching. Talk about squash TV, see how PJ's thoughts were on on the event because he was there all week. So cover the whole, I think, give the TOC its due because I think it is an event that yeah. everybody talks about. So much into it. But Connor, and, why don't you lead us some, off? Some college squash too? If, a little uh, college squash. There's a big match going on today, which starting at noon, Harvard. Harvard, which lost to Princeton yesterday too, by the way. Their second loss in a row. Yeah. So they lost to Trinity last week, lost to Princeton yesterday, and now go into the the, 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 the I guess the Lions Den would actually be Columbia, but the the Quaker Den. And uh, facing Gilly Lane's undefeated Penn, Penn men's squash team. So that should yeah. be a interesting match. Is maybe, maybe will Penn step on Harvard's throat and Harvard's dead? Will Harvard be dead after this? That's the question. It is. It or is. will Mike have his way with Gilly again? Oh, oof, wow. oof. oh, oh yeah, sobering up. He's sobering up. What do you got for us, Connor? How are you doing? What I also want to try and include in these episodes was I'm really excited with the new role at the PSA. And uh, there's a lot going on there. And I just want to drip out some of the great things that we're working on. And it's there's so much being developed that it's like drinking from a fire hose. If I'm talking to any club promoter, PSA promoter, like there's a lot going on. So I'm just going to try and drip it out. So today's topic is is related to broadcast. And with the introduction of Squash TV, we've seen the evolution. It's capturing the top of the game. There's a lot of different levels there, but we're really excited to introduce SquashTV.local. And the vision here is really just to try and get all matches streamed at all levels of the game. So think whether it's your daily challenge matches on the club, your club championships, your league nights. And of course, it also provides a really high quality base level for professional events as well. And if you think about it, this is actually the solution is solving three problems. It's really making it simple to use. Its affordability is really great. And it's going to be able to tie into the Squash TV level broadcast. I'll go through that quickly, but making it simple to use. I don't know if you guys have tried to solve this. I've done everything from how could you stream it from your iPhone, get an iPad, what hardware can you buy? Do you hire an IT company? And really, there's a lot of ways that if you have any capabilities of this, you might be able to stitch it together. But really, we're always looking for simplicity. What is the stop-start button? And this is a cloud-based system. It combines great hardware with software. And you can. one of the challenges is getting scoring in, integrated. And this solves that problem, whether it's potentially Club Locker, Sporty HQ, the PSA app, or there, it has its own app that you can use. But you can also put sponsor logos. PJ, if you're doing this on your coaching a a coaching lesson, you could put PJ Squash up there yep. just for that match or that lesson, and it would appear on the front wall. You can brand it however you want. So some people are using it that way. Affordability, when I've priced this out for other clubs or even at the one I was just at recently, these were coming in at low-end $15,000 all the way up to $25,000 per court. Whoa. And this, yeah, and this solution is $3,000. So per, huge... what is, this, is this per year or it's just a one-time setup fee or how does that work? Yeah, it's, it's, it's $3,000 for the lifetime license plus the camera. Mm-hmm. And then there is a, a maintenance and service fee that is called, I forget if it's like $450 to $500 per year. Yeah. And it goes down if you have more courts. But that provides remote access, troubleshooting, monitoring, and it's a cloud system. It's helpful there. Wow, that's, and that's, then, that's quite a price drop or quite a price difference, yeah. should I say. 
Yeah, and the reason why these other IT solutions or these companies are really trying to make money off of this. Mm. If you look at the hardware, software, and then the margins they're making, we're just trying to get this into the ecosystem. We know that this is a problem. Hey, we've solved it. Let's just get it into more courts. And Let, Let's say, sorry to interrupt, but right. let's say a club or somebody like myself, coach, sets up a coaching call with, the, with your logo and your brand up the top there. Who can access this and how can they watch these particular matches? What platforms are being used for the public or the squash playing audience that they can then get in and access and watch this kind of stuff? Yeah, it's a great question. Right now, we are just a facilitator. Okay. So we have created the solution, meaning you can use your own private network. You can use YouTube. You can do that publicly or privately. There's daily motion. We're just connecting the dots. So you are actually in control of where that gets pointed and who sees it. All right. All right. So it's, it should make it. And that's where we're trying to help. But the third thing was this ties into it's going to be one of the base levels of Squash TV. So you can are the lowest level broadcast kit. This is like the permanent base. And you could add on if you're running an event like you want to do multicam. Squash TV could bring in two more cameras and you could do multi-swishing. Or this could even be remote access and we can switch from like England or wherever we want. So really production levels, costs have just dramatically dropped. Wow. Is there a commentary aspect to this? Yeah, you can do, or we've all seen the remote commentary, the remote thing. So you can do that. Or if you want to do on-site, great. You can fly someone out there. Just mm -hmm. adds, this is the dial of cost. But really now we've dropped it way down, way down. And the goal here being that now if you have all those ingredients and pieces, we could maybe help put into the market the high school squash network. So you could watch all the high school leagues across the country, the college squash network, New York squash league. You could all be there. And again, th this is it's, we can work with the leagues or however you want to do it and create the squash TV local channel where then people could tune in and discover all the different kinds of squash going on nationwide and globally. Are you the support for this, Connor? Yeah, yeah, I'm tech support. <laughs> this is this is massive. This is absolutely massive. Yeah, we did a show a couple of months ago about the, uh, the introduction of Olympics into the uh, squash mm -hmm. into the Olympics. Sorry, and I think squash was reaching somewhere around 20 million participants. I don't know what the exact number of the viewers are, but this potentially could literally explode with yeah. that kind of an opportunity. But to be able to go down and or, or to watch your club championships or even some contentious league matches down the club or for some of the these guys don't even have to these viewers don't even have to be watching professional squash this will go right yeah. through the each demographic of the game which is we can't just purely focus on the tip of the iceberg with the pros we need to filter this down to the bottom of the pyramid and that sounds really exciting from a squash fan you standpoint you could have watched me dry heave on the tin this morning <laughs> if they had it set up, it's just what people no, want to see. PJ, I totally agree. And this is why it makes me so excited. Like when I go back to when I first learned about squash and picked up a racket, I was 16 years old and I knew nothing of the other games, but I was hooked. Yeah, I didn't even know that there was college squash. I barely knew that there was professional squash. So if you can get this ecosystem, you're like, you can be curious and start to learn about the other parts of the game. And that's the goal where we just want to help facilitate that. And of course, it all bubbles up to the top level of the game. Yeah. So this is really, it can feel like, why are you guys doing this? And it's like, well, we've solved hard problems and we want to support the squash community. We're opening access to these solutions we've solved. Awesome. All right, awesome. Connor, your time is up. Yeah. I know, thank you. <laughs> okay, everybody could click their podcast back on again. We're about to talk squash. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Bill. The, squash so, Week in New York. Let's go. Squash Week in New York. PJ, the TOC, you were there for the whole week. I saw you over the weekend. I, matches leading up, there weren't any a lot of great matches on the glass court. There was a couple sessions that were decent. There was a lot of one-sided matches on the glass court. But in the end, the drama happened in the semifinals, really, with Norel Sherbini. Norel Sherbini's match against Hamami, it was like her Jordan flu game. After game one, which she won on, at game two. She looked like she was ready to stop playing and she was going to retire. Joey was saying, I think she should retire. She's just going to hurt herself. And then she came back and beat the, and it's not like she beat like a top 20 player. She beat the number two player in the world, basically without being able to bend over and pick up her racket. Like every time she dropped her racket on the ground, it's like my body hurt watching her try to bend down and pick it up. Just a phenomenal performance. And then she backed it up by beating... 
coming back from two love to beat Noran Gohar, which is again, yeah. another top five player, one of the best players in the world. And just a, a cementing her legacy, in my opinion, as the greatest women's squash player, she was the story of the tournament. I don't think there's much doubt as to who is the greatest of all time. You can look at records. You can look at what Nicole David did and some of the greats of back in the day, Surface Job, Michelle Martin and players of that ilk. But the, the stats that Shabini starting to rack up now compiled with the fact that she's been doing it for so long since she was 16 years of age and also if you look at just the simple level that she's actually playing at those players that I mentioned before have had held these records but the maybe the players around them weren't as strong as the likes of Hamamis, Willie Taibs mm-hmm. and that kind of gohars and that that kind of quality but for Shabini to come through, and she's done this on so many occasions. If you look at her record in finals, for example, she's now 14-2 against Hamami. The worrying thing for Hamami is, sorry, was that, or was that Goha? I'm not sure, I'm not sure. Actually, she's 11-7 against Hamami. And that's not in the finals. The 14-2 is against Goha in the finals. It's the, the gap and the head-to-head bridge that she's got over these other players is... Not alarming or concerning for the chasing pack, but it's got to be a little bit soul-destroying and demoralising because Goha, she's had an opportunity there with Shabini, clearly massively injured, two-love lead, and still can't get the job done. And it's just one of those phases and one of those eras that we're in. We had it with Jahangir Khan, we had it with Janshir Khan, had it with Heather Mackay many years ago, that the number one in the world is just so much better than everybody else. And that was... Cemented. You think it's you think it's their head, right? How, what is Hamami's ex, not excuse, but what happened? It's one one. She sees that Sherbini can't go forward. Why yeah. isn't Hamami like adjusting her game and making Sherbini work a little harder up front instead of trying to bash the ball with her and keeping her in the back and giving Sherbini the opportunity to go for shots? It's abs- it's totally mental. You're right. I think the issue that both Hamami and Goha had was they both of them saw the finishing line too early. They saw that their opponent was injured and they also got overexcited about the opportunity of winning the title or scoring another scalping over Shabini, who maybe subconsciously they feel is a little bit better than them. Goha, for example, I've never seen her go short quite so much and open the court quite so much as she did in that final from a two-love mm. lead. That completely played into the hands of El Shabini. Yeah drop shot isn't world-class by any means. No, they both tactically got it completely wrong. And another thing that's so subtle and so brilliant about Shabini is her management of the pace of the match. And I'm not talking about during the rallies, the, mm. the speed in which she's hitting the ball and how fast she's moving. It's in between points. She controls everything on t- and it's on her terms. She'll bounce the ball in a nice slow way, which we've got somebody like a Hamami or a Goha who know that their opponent's injured. They want the rallies to come on thick and fast. They want the pace to be fast. Shabini just completely nullifies that. And she's not breaking the rules. Everything that she's doing, she's not time-wasting, but she's just controlling the tempo of the match. That then fuels the fire even more for Goha and Hamami. So when the rally starts, they you can see the levels of arousal and overexcitement in the way that they're playing, and it completely, it just capitulates and comes undone in front of them. And Shabini's just, her, anything within her kind of swing range that isn't out of reach, her ball control is so good, her finishing touch is so severe and deadly that it was almost like practice for her because she just yeah. continued to keep putting the ball away time after time, and nothing changed, nothing changed. And that's why I think after the matches, Shabini turned around and said, I can't believe I've just won this tournament. Because it was not some, it was obviously a little bit to do with how she played, but it's also to do with how tactically her opponents got it wrong. So, what does that say? So, Noren Gohar has Rod Martin known as one of the top coaches in the world. So, why, into my, when I saw El Shabini win game three, I said, This is over. She's going to win this match. Yeah. And Noren Gohar is a great player with a great coach. What didn't she do? What did Rod Martin, what did she not listen to of Rod Martin? Because Rod must see this and tell her, do this. Did she just ignore it or she, like, how does that work? I think it's a case of her not listening to the coach in that situation. I've spoke to Rodney on many occasions and tactically, mm. he's got one of the best squash brains I've ever right. come across. He's right up there with the very best. 
with your Jonah Barrington's, David Pearson, I'm biased because obviously DP was my coach, but Rodney, mm. the way he sees flaws, technical flaws, tactical flaws in his opponents is quite unique and you can just sit there and chat and listen to him for quite some time. I don't think it would have been tactical misinformation, if you like. I think it was a case of Gohar just feeling that she raced off to a two-love lead. She had it under control and did not stick to the game plan. And that's it's as simple as that. I think she reverted away from what was working so well in those first two games. Sherbini was full Sherbini after game, after game three. She was in the corner. She had her back brace on. Her hair was everywhere. Her hair was in her mouth. Her hair was like in her eyes. She was yeah. sweating profusely. Yeah. She has a, she had the back brace on that like I would wear. It was like an yeah. old man's back brace. And she yeah. lifted it up and was like adjusting it. And her, I don't want to point them out, but her abs were, I mean, she doesn't appear like Nellie Gillis to be like super fit. Like when you see, because she doesn't wear the kind of clothing that like accentuates her body type. Yeah. When she put her lifted up her shirt to adjust her back brace, her abs were like rocks. Yeah. It was stunning to see. But this is why we're almost seeing the resurgence of the career of Nuril Shabini. She went through a phase at the back end of Walili and Tayeb, where I wouldn't say there was a drop-off, but the pack behind were just starting to close the gap a little bit. And you've got to give a lot of credit to Shabini for taking the decision or making the decision to go and spend some time with Greg Gaultier. There's been a massive change in her, in her physicality and her court coverage and her movement. Physically, you just got to look at the definition now in the calves, the quads, the hamstrings. And as we saw yeah. in between games, the six-pack, they weren't as prominent as they are now a couple of years ago. And you've got to, that's a testament to her. And that's why we're now seeing, again, this a bit of a push on as you come into what you could call, don't forget, she's only bloody 28 years of age. It's just ridiculous yeah. that she's still doing what she's doing at that age after so many years at the top of the game. But you also have to see the way that she interacts. She's clearly massively struggling. Her father's in the corner. He's watching his daughter out there, but it's got to be gut-wrenching for him seeing his daughter yeah. have to go through what she's going through. And he's just saying, but no, it's, there's really no need for you to continue to press on and press on and push through this. The interaction between them, it's so lovely. They're such a lovely family and you can see that there's no pressure, no external pressures with Nora Shabini like there are from other parents and other outside influences like Shabini's getting. And the whole setup just looks so, so calm and amazing in order. It's, it's fantastic. It really was noticeable yeah. just to follow up what you were saying that these yeah. between games, the smiles yeah. that were happening in her corner as opposed to the kind of <laughs> just the opposite going on in Gohar's corner and in El Hamami's corner. She she looked like she was like having a blast at some clinic on a Saturday morning. She wasn't like she was playing at a platinum event in New York City on the biggest stage in squash. It was remarkable. Yeah. 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 And there's also, I don't know if any of them will be listening, but the you've got to give also so much credit to the physio team that looks after Shapiro. Mm -hmm. You saw the state she was in after that second game against Hamami and to get her through that, not only get her through that particular match, when you spasm a back muscle like that, generally the next day, it's twice as bad because as the muscles start to get a little bit of rest, they go into a lockdown mode where the whole area just goes into protection. And generally, us, the TV crew, had actually come to the realisation that there was a, a massive potential that Shabini wasn't even going to feature in the final. And there were even murmurings and rumours that was the case because they'd, she'd been seen walking around the hotel in, uh, looking so debilitated and completely out of sorts that she may not even play. Um, Word had it, PJ, that you were like that too, finals morning, and there was a chance that you weren't going to broadcast the finals. It was just a rumour, but then again, just be careful what your sources are. Those Channeled your, are. your inner Sherbini. I did. I did. I did. I will did, just go to a very did, quick point. Previously. Connor, we are not going to let you speak. No, you know, Connor, you know. I just want to... No. Bill, no. Bill, Bill was referencing about the quality of the semi-finals onwards. I'm going to slightly disagree. I think the top 24 players in the men's and the women's age groups now have gone to a whole new level. This tournament actually Agreed. caught fire from round three, even the quarterfinals even back into round three. Some performances there from some new names. We've got some new features coming in through on the tour, primarily in the ladies' game. Watanabe was, was impressive. This Abuel Kia, 
who caused mm. a few issues in her match. I'm going to put this out there now. I think she's a potential for world number one. I think we're going to see a great rivalry, not too dissimilar to Goha in the way of Orphi from a style of play standpoint. And then Abu Elkir, who, who's very similar to Shabini. So just keep an eye on those two because it's almost like those the, those two young players coming through could take over the mantle of Shabini and Goha. It's not just that. It's, she's, again, another 16-year-old, even from a body standpoint and just a tactical and technical perspective. I'm sitting there watching her and I'm thought, oh my God, I've seen this, I've seen this before somewhere. And then sure enough, Shabini took to the court and I'm like, this is the new Shabini. Yeah, absolutely. Connor, just don't talk about, about filming and streaming and stuff. Go ahead, add something. That's so funny. A good one, Bill. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot to touch on there. And I think when we look back at the, um, whenever Shabini retires, this will go down as one of her historic performances. And I think we <laughs> call her a champion, but the definition of a champion sometimes, it's a given of how you're going to win at your best. But this really showed when she wasn't at her best and what she drew on, all of her experience, every trick in the book, pulling out her grit, her determination. It really was just a historic performance. And for anyone who is tracking, of, if you don't follow many other sports quickly, Jordan Flew isn't a person, because Bill and I had this discussion, is Michael Jordan during his playoff match where he had the flu and played out of his mind. And I think that's a really like an analogy there, Bill, just to clear up that little confusion for any potential Jordan flu fans out there. I'm going to, I'm going to interject with just a story that has nothing to do with what we were talking about. Based on Jordan flu, we had tickets left for us at, for the TOC and my colleague, Karim, who's Egyptian, not fully American yet. I told him that the tickets would be at will call. And he texted me and said, Hey, is Will Call at this tournament too? I know he was at the U.S. Open, but I never met him. <laughs> and this, that is a true story. That is a true story. I laughed so hard. I was looking at the text. I had to call him up. I said, dude, I'm going to tell 10 people that story in the next half an hour. Well, and now we've told at our least whole... 15. Uh, at least, we've, at least 15, yeah. exactly. So we'll call if you're out there. Thanks for those tickets. <laughs> yeah, you should meet up with Jordan Flew. I, I did also want to touch on, because I agree with... PJ, there are some outstanding performances, and this just shows the depth of the game that's going on. Some that were uh, jumped out to me, not as the ones that were more obvious was the Victor Kroon upset over Paul Cole. That was amazing. Yeah, Nathan Lake crashing into the top sixteen. Just this is his hometown now in, in New York, and just another solid performance of someone really climbing the ranks. And a shout out to the Americans, who I always look pay attention to. That we had two guys in the top fifty beating number 18 and number the, from Qatar and the Frenchman uh, 33. So, Tamimi, yeah. Tamimi, yeah. Yeah, good upsets there. Before we talked about Ali Faragi, you mentioned Paul Victor Kron beating Paul Call. So that was a... a I watched that whole match. It was very interesting. It was great. You guys, Joey and PJ, I hate to give you guys credit, but you guys really broke that match down really well. Is it true that Paul Call changed his swing and his game for this tournament? Because he no. did not look like the same Paul Call. He made a lot of errors. His drop shots were god-awful. Just what was the difference? It was more, not that Kroon didn't play well, because Kroon did play well, but it was more that Paul Call did not play well at all in that match. It was, he has made some technical tweaks, primarily on the forehand and backhand side. With his basic hitting, there's a much higher preparation at the top of the swing, which will then enable him to hit down on the ball at a more of attacking angle, which will create a flatter trajectory on the ball, therefore dying in the back corners. That coincidentally should force a weaker return. Then he can be a little bit more attacking going into the front. So the high backswing is causing a more of a dying length and then hopefully he can attack the uh, the front two corners with a bit more frequency. It's not the first event he's used it. Bill, he used it at the US Open. He did it there. There were some small changes that he'd made there, and he actually ended up winning that tournament. He's then continued to work on it through the festive period. He works with Loris Jans and Jamar, the Dutch former Dutch top ten player in the world oh, yeah. over in over in Holland. They've been continuing to work on it. He sends some videos through to Rod and I'm assuming Rob Owen will be overlooking some of this as well. It's a bit of a team effort going on there. And so there, there had been some very good work going into the TOC. He then went up and saw Rod for two or three days before the event and felt razor sharp and he was really excited to play. 
where I feel Paul got it wrong going into that match against Cruan, he looked as flat physically as I'd seen him. There was no bounce. There was no spring in his step. And a couple of people had actually seen him hitting during the days of his matches with Rod Martin. And I'm gonna, I will get this confirmed later on. But apparently the sessions they were doing were quite intense. It wasn't just a basic feed of getting your eye in and practicing and grooving your swing. This was like a borderline pressure session, which is where it's a very intense feed, very fast feeding, a lot of reps, short rest, just trying to hone in on, on those skills. And when he came into that match against Victor Cron, yes, a lot of errors were made, Bill, I agree. It, I don't think it was so much of a technical breakdown. I just think he wasn't in position as well as he would be normally just because he was fatigued. Is it normal to have pressure sessions? No, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So what, why would they do that? What would be the purpose? Good question. I will try and find out some more and get some confirmation of exactly how it went down. But uh, I know right. that a couple of people saw one, one session in particular, which was quite intense. And uh, But you have to imagine there's some purpose there, right? Because otherwise yeah, yeah. it could have been a miscalculation, right? It, uh it could have been a miscalculation in as much as because Paul is so excited about the prospect of where he can take his game to with these new developments and these new inclusions of certain elements that he almost tried too hard and did too much on the days that he wasn't playing. Long gone, that went back in the day when I was playing, it would be your 20-minute session, maybe half an hour practice session with an opponent who had been selected for you on the court to get some familiarity. Right. And then literally it'd be feet up in front of the TV or wherever you were. Right. You'd be re relaxing all day. Some of these guys, they're doing bike sessions, they're doing hitting sessions, intense practice sessions, far different from what we used to. Whether one is right or one is wrong, who knows? But... You've got to find out what works for you. But I just feel in this particular occasion that, as I said, Paul is really enthused and excited about the potential here. Mm -hmm. And he's just gone a bit too hard too soon. And yeah. listen, the technical changes, once they do get into his game and feel more natural, are only going to improve his game, in my opinion. But it's still, it's going to take a little bit of time. Where I've got to give Paul even more credit is the fact that he's even willing to try that. Now, normally these are changes mm -hmm. that you make out of season in a block of time when there's no nothing of any significance to be played. There's no real tournaments on, especially big tournaments like US Open, mm -hmm. TOC and that kind of stuff. And you can go and hone those skills. Whereas Paul's willing to back himself and do it in the middle of a tournament, which is... To many people will sound insane and crazy, but he's done it and he's had success with it in Philadelphia at the US Open. Didn't quite work out for him in TOC. So you can't certainly knock him or blame him for trying, but early signs are definitely good. Yeah, it reminds me of Tiger Woods when Tiger Woods, he's dominating the PGA Tour, but he's always talking about tweaking his swing and changing his swing and changing this. And I'm always like, I was always like, why would you change anything? You are by far the best player. And with Paul Call, the early season success he had, just interesting that he's looking to change. I think with somebody like Paul Cole, for example, you look at Tiger Woods, he wants to be able to hit his proximity the his proximity to the hole with his second shot and he wanted to be a bit tighter. He wanted another five, ten yards off the tee, as an example. Somebody like Paul Cole, if ever anybody talks about the way that he plays, 90% of the people will say he needs to improve his short game. And listen, let's mm -hmm. make no mistake, there's nothing wrong with his length and his width hitting or his, his mm -hmm. physical attributes. If there's an area he can, if he wants to start to take on the likes of Farag and Asal and those people, he needs to be able to put the ball away. So that's where some of these tweaks and swing changes come in, Bill, because playing the way that he was playing with the old older technique would have worked to a certain level and a very good level, by the way good enough to be top three in the world. But somebody like Paul Cole, three's not good enough for him. He's right. already been at number one. He wants to be the best player in the world. And that's why he'll be making these changes to have that ability to start to be a bit more creative going in short, start to have a, an artillery of winning shots, which he didn't really have before. So mm -hmm. this is all a lead up to hopefully a, a better finished product. I can't believe how many times I reference Formula One where it's, that's what, 
goes on in Formula One. They're constantly tweaking the cars every race, yeah. every time, like always trying to look for that 1% improvement in every area because yeah. then that's where the big changes happen over time. So that led to Ali Farag basically playing crew in the semi, I mean, in the semis in which he put on a clinic. I, 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 I felt a little bad for Kruin. Kruin obviously looks up to Ali Farag. They both went to Harvard. They both were ridiculously high-level college players. I did hear Ashling ask, Ashling and Lisa ask what players Ali Farag lost to in college during that match because they were talking a little bit about their careers. And the only, you'd only, the only two players that Ali Farag lost to in college? Khalifa? Khalifa, good one. Yep, Khalifa. Blanking. Todd Harrity. Wow. Oh, really? Yeah, really? Yeah. The only two players he lost to in his college ah. career. Yeah, not too bad. But yeah, so Ali Farag, uh, won, I wouldn't say he won. He won the semi very easily. I think I think Kruin didn't have a lot left in the tank there. And then Ali beat Diego in the final. There was a lot of talk between Joey and, and so. Ashling and Lisa, I apologize, about his fitness, about Diego's fitness. Yeah. And talking about him being overweight and him not having the the physicality to handle somebody like like Ali when Ali's playing at his best. Do you agree that like Diego is not in good enough shape right now to beat Ali Farag in a, in a final? I think it's a little bit unfair to say that Diego Elias is overweight. If you look at his, his body fat percentages will be very low. You're just up against Ali Farag who's carrying 15 kilograms less. So over the course of the time or the duration of a match, eventually that the heavy bones and the heavy muscles are just going to finally kind of break down and slow down. It's a little bit like the old matchups that we used to have between Jansha Khan and Chris Dittmar back in the day. And Jansha mm. knew that if he could just extend out, even if he lost the first game, if he could drag it out to a 20, 25 minute game, eventually Dits would capitulate and fall. And this is exactly what's happening with Elias. They played in now eight finals. Elias hasn't really, although he's got that sole victory, that was because Farag pulled out injured. Apart from that, all the other seven finals have gone in the way of Farag. 21-3 in the head-to-heads throughout the PSA World Tour, their careers. So Ali's obviously got his number. And Ali just has referencing what Bill was saying earlier. You've got Kruon. And again, massive kudos to Kruon, by the way. Let's not forget, he had a five-gamer against Solomon, 81 minutes. He had a five-gamer against Marwan, yeah. 75 minutes. He had a brutal 16-14 tiebreak against Paul Cole in the first game there, managed to come through in three. So Kruon's come into that particular semi-final about as tired as he's ever going to be. The annoying thing with Farag is, should any player ever have a weakness or a flaw in their game, Ali is going to expose it. So he would have known that all he needed to do was not particularly attack too often the front of the court and allow himself any kind of possibility of being exposed himself. He just extended the points. And yeah, eventually, it's like a slow death. It's like watching a Spanish ball <laughs> fight with the matador and the poor ball. Eventually, you just see them running out of energy and then ideas. And then it, Ali just he just picks them off. And Ali, I don't remember ever seeing Ali Farag have a bad movement day. And that also plays into the mind of the opponents. They, it's almost like they need to try and count on Farag having a major off day for them to be playing at the be- the top of their game, for them to have a chance of beating them. And, Eli- and Farag having an easy semi, no going into the final, how fresh he's going. Not an easy semi where he didn't get pushed to five games and it wasn't 90 minutes. Yeah. Going into the final that he's going to be fresh and that's going to spell a little bit of doom for Elias for sure. Yeah, listen, the match that he had with, was it Asal? Who did No, who did he play in the other semi? Who was it in the other semi? It was Asal in the semi. Yeah, Asal. Yeah, Asal. Yeah. A 90-minute, not just a physical battle, but... I mean, that, that it was pr- pretty mental as well mm-hmm. and physical. To come through mm-hmm. that was yep. would have been very tough. So, listen, he's taken Ali to five in about as... Uh, a Diego Elias of 18 months ago, two years ago, would have been a three-love non-feature in that final. So the fact yeah. that he's actually made a match of it and had Farag somewhat concerned at times yeah. would have been encouraging for him. Could he get fitter? Absolutely. But I certainly don't think it's, it's a lot better than it was. But uh, a do you think? Uh, do you think Joey's projecting his weight issues onto Diego at this point? Hundred percent. Joey's yeah. obviously he has major weight issues. Yeah. Yeah, and he's yeah. He, so he's he, really point, he was pointing. 
Yeah, he's, it trying, was to put, he's trying to deflect. It's deflecting, Bill. That's what yeah. I noticed. I, I didn't want to bring. I, I wasn't going to bring it up, but it was so obvious. Yeah, for anybody brought... that saw any envision, we did actually have to. We had to change across to a wide-angled lens just to make sure that we got the shoulders in and. Uh, and wearing were, black. The <laughs> buttons were working overtime for Joey this week. There's no question about it. Exactly. One last thing I wanted to bring up before we get into the other topics is the the session that I considered the best session of the week. It was two two matches, and it was Mohamed Al-Shabagi and Asal, and then Al-Arabi and Orfi. And there was a lot of criticism online about the refereeing in those two matches, about the players, the yelling at the refs, and the complaining and all that. But to me, and I could understand people being there because there were so many stops and starts, but I told PJ the next day when I woke him up at, at 10 o'clock in the morning, by the way, I called PJ at 10 a.m., Connor, and he goes, I hope this is good. I'm, it's early. I was like, dude, it's 10 o'clock. It's not early. But the watching that from a fan perspective was the most exciting session of the TOC. Like every point was high drama. And you guys stepped up to the plate as squash TV announcers to really bring that home. And I know it might not have been as fun for people who are sitting there watching, but as a viewer at home, it was incredible. I was like on pins and needles watching it. It was awesome. Absolutely awesome. So there is a fine line between Mm. drama and pure squash, right? And the fallout from it was that while people said it was, some people online said it was too much whining and bad refereeing. So if you go on to Squash Stories and read Roddy <clears> Martin, <throat> who doesn't post often, and I don't think I'm overstating this, he called Mohamed al Sharbagi a cheater on Squash Stories and said that he knew he was going to get beaten that match three love, and then he started cheating and started purposely looking for contact, purposely trying to u- trying to use the refs as pawns and make the refs make calls that they normally wouldn't have to make because he knew that if he played this match straight, he would lose three love. And he said, and he couched it by saying, I'm good friends with Mohamed Al-Shabagi and I've been critical of Assal in the past, but Assal got done in by that match because Mohamed Al-Shabagi cheated. Pretty shocking uh, stuff. Not unexpected from Rod. Rod speaks his mind. And as okay. I said to you, he, he, when it comes to squash, he does, he talks a lot of sense. Okay. I do think the referees lost control, without a shadow of a doubt. They did. To have 50 decisions in a ladies' match, 62 decisions in a men's match, we've tried so hard to clean up the game, and it was in the right, It was going in the right direction. Every That match with Asal and El Shabagi, every 1.2 rallies, there was a stoppage and a let ask for. It's too much. It's too much. I understand you saying it's dramatic and it's exciting and everything else that comes with it, but... There comes a point when it just becomes farcical. And that match, in my opinion, was a farce. In the end, it got to a point where Mohamed El Shabagi was actually dictating to the referee. Was it Mike Riley? Was Mike Mike the referee of that one? I can't remember. But it ended up with Shabagi telling Mike what decisions should be made. We'll just play a let or I think it's a stroke or it's this or that. Also, unfortunately, Mike got caught openly on air saying that he wasn't willing to make a certain decision. So the thing became, a, and I'm not blaming Mike, by the way, these are just incidents that happened. It, but it just became a complete debacle where for us trying to commentate on it, there was no flow. There was no momentum and the squash didn't really do the talking. Unfortunately, it was all about the behaviour of the players who is, are equally to blame and some of the refereeing. That's not what the game really should be all about, in my opinion. I blame the fans. fans. (laughs) That's an inside joke for people who watch Squash TV and when PJ PJ threw it down to Lee Drew. Oh, yeah. yeah. That didn't go so well. (laughs) The other stuff, the streaming, PSA, I thought Squash TV did a phenomenal job during this event. The sideline reporting is such an addition to this. Having somebody down in the stands to able to interview Fans, coaches, celebrities, see what the coaches are talking about in the corners. I agree. It's a massive addition. It gives the fans a bit more of a closer feel of behind the scenes and what actually goes on. And so what would you think? I also threw it out there on Twitter and about having a, it's not a full-blown press conference, but having PSA, having Squash TV, giving the loser a chance to cool down, but then going, because I would have loved to have heard from Hamami after the Sherbini match. Hey, what happened? What were, you were up? You're tied one game one. She was obviously injured. You lost three to one. Could you tell us in your words what happened? Why did you lose that match? I think that's severely missing from squash because in every other sport, every other sport, the losers speak afterwards. They don't like it. I'm sure it's not comfortable. It's, not, it's certainly not what they want to do. But it's great for the fans to understand. It's great to hear 
Ali Farag talk about how he won and, hey, I give credit to this guy and blah, 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 blah. And then he goes on his his rants about other things. But it would be nice to hear from the losers and hear what their thoughts are from Gohar, from Hamami, and even from Victor Kroon and El Arabi about their first time playing in a platinum semi. What was it like? Was it different? Was it different stepping on that stage than it was in the third round? Just things such as that. I couldn't agree more. And I think from a PSA perspective, Connor may have a bit more insight than me. I think we need to change that that direction a little bit. I think that the post-match speeches from all the players are, they're boring. It's the same, it's the same spiel every single match. I'm not discrediting the players because they have to say what they have to say. This is not about, it's not the players' fault. But I'm not a massive fan of these post-match interviews where they go out to the crowd, they thank the crowd for being so wonderful and say how much they love being in New York and they have so much respect for their opponent and blah, 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 blah. And it's every single player says the same thing. And again, yep. this is not a dig at the players. That's, it is, that's just the way that it is. I think we do need more press conferences. We need to bring more controversy and more drama to the fans outside who may be... They want to read some of these stories. They, we had a situation where we had the we did do some press conferences at the Windy City Open about four or five years ago. Amanda Sobe came out and flat out called Gohara cheat because she calls up yes. double bounces. But then everybody crapped themselves because of the bad publicity that it was receiving. But that's what we need for people to start talking about the game. You watch some of the clips on TikTok and YouTube and it's a press conferences of, I can't remember, there's a famous one about the guy, the basketball player just keeps going on about practice. Here we are, we're talking about practice, practice. We're not even talking about the game, we're talking about practice. And it gives people a talking point. And I think I'd love to, we want to hear players calling somebody out. If, uh, if Asal was to call Shabagi out for picking up a, a, a double hit or f- uh, for Asal feeling as though he was, sorry, for Elias feeling as though he's pushed over by Asal or Hamami going on at Goha. We want to hear and read about these guys. They don't have, they're not the best of friends. They don't need to behave in a friendly manner off the court. On the court, there needs to be an element of decorum and the game needs to be played within a certain within certain perimeters. But outside of that, it sh- I think they should be given freedom to say what they want about the opponent. And I think press conferences would be a massive addition to that, 100%. And you would also need someone there to ask the tough question, right? So it's tough because PS, it's their product, so it's Squash TV's product, so it'd be Squash TV kind of asking the question. So you almost need a reporter who's going to ask Mohamed El Shabagi, hey, what was that out there? You are one of the proponents of integrity of the game, and what you just did was anything but that. So explain yourself. Where you I don't mean, know if you Squash... Mean, you, you mean somebody like you? Is that what you're trying think- to... That's yep. exactly what I mean. PJ, yep. you are so smart. hundred percent. I know we, I can hear the cogs whirring around. Alex, Lee, anybody else at the PSA listening? Yes, I want that. I no, want to want to be we, that person. We don't want the generic, what is it about Chicago that you like? Mm-hmm. We want to hear you say, okay, what's your take on the stroke decision at match ball? What did you think yes. of the pickup? What about the trailing leg? We, yep. They need to be asked hard questions like that. I agree. You mean, at, you, don't want to, you don't want to hear about Renim being pregnant? Is that what you're saying? it it is what we need and I think once we get these kind of clips on the press conferences then we get them out there we get people talking about it because if somebody calls somebody a liar or a cheater or uh, picking up a double bounce there's a bit of feistiness within the tour it's only going to help any publicity is good publicity so I think if we can get some more talking points out there then I agree is that something Connor that there is discussion about one of the issues I do know that we have is we are working on those kind of areas and you've got Nathan at the PSA who's doing a fantastic job with all the social media stuff but any idea how many as in his team because to try and get all of the footage and all of these clips together. It's got to be quite time-consuming. If he's, if, unless he's got a big team around him, it's going to be quite a challenge. Yeah, what I'll say is I think we all have a shared vision of whether it's football here in, in the U.S. or football in Europe where that level of quality production and everything that's orchestrated, we're aspiring and trying to get there. And you can see the gaps that we've closed and you can see the gaps that are still there. I think one of the distinctions is we don't really have the press corps following us, the press tours. Like no one's coming knocking down like, hey, where's this press conference? I do also think that every venue is slightly different, that to have that level of consistency is a challenge. So if we had set up arenas, 
and we had a dedicated room, hey, you can set up cameras and have that there. So I do know that's that's not to say you couldn't do that, but then what that comes down to is, do you have the dedicated crew and the dedicated equipment that you can then put on having those kind of extra setups, which is what you alluded to, PJ, that there's different level production starting from the beginning. And by the way, the TOC backcourts weren't streamed versus when you get into the quarterfinals onwards. So there are gaps. A lot of this is the, so I think vision wise, we'd agree. I think it's the resources that are still missing. I do agree. And this is part of the plan. I know we are trying to get more media training for our players. That's another resource issue. And then also helping them think through what are the overall narratives that we want to be going in? So what did you experience in this match, this tournament, the city, but really what's the overarching narratives that we're having of these players and the rivalries that are going on. And I, it's not to say I want to get to this level where it's WWE and scripted out, but I think there's lessons learned there of these ongoing dramas and these, and because they're there, we're talking about them, what's mm-hmm. going on, but it's really helping them draw out because they're not as easy that you do need to tease these out. At the very least at this point, and this doesn't take equipment because you do read the write-ups on PSA and you read them on Squash Stories and I'm on Squash site. I think at the very least, you need a quote from the loser in the story when you talk, when you write, do the write-up that Ali Farag yeah. beat, when you get all these quotes from Ali Farag, and again, it's all platitudes and my opponent was awesome and I tried my best, blah, blah, blah. In that story, there has to be, well, and then Diego Elias said, yeah, I, I fought hard till the fifth game and then I ran out of gas at 9-9 or whatever the case may be. You just need a le- just a quote. That's to yeah. start and then take it from there. But that, saying, that being said, a step up, one of the big things that the TOC, and this may have been going on before the TOC, but I was not aware of it. And I, I blame the PSA or Squash TV for not letting me be aware of it. And I only saw it in a tweet. The TOC was on Amazon Prime. And I, I was at a sports bar and commandeered a remote and was able to watch Squash at a bar which is pretty incredible, right? It was the semis were free. You didn't even need to log into Squash TV. You just needed to go to Amazon Prime and click play. And you got Joey Barrington standing outside Grand Central Station, promoting it with all the stuff that PSA does and all the promo. And then on court, you got to watch the live squash with your guys broadcast at a bar. Like the granted, the people I was at the bar with were not thrilled, but I was thrilled. And Connor, do you know about this? It wasn't, I didn't know until I read somebody tweeted it that day. And then the finals were not live. I could not watch the finals. It was really difficult. I couldn't log in, how to log into Prime and log into Squash TV at the same time. It's not very intuitive, but it's a great step to be able to not have to watch on your computer or on your phone for sure. Yeah, you're falling into the category of the fan that never is happy when these things come out. Yes, we haven't broadcasted it and that's purposeful. This has been in, because it's a rollout period. So mm-hmm. you do the same way when you release anything. It's like a soft release or a kind of hidden release, a soft release, and you're amping up. So I don't think this has achieved the mass rollout yet because we're still testing. So there's a lot more in coming down the pike uh, in terms of the broadcast solutions, options coming out there. That's really exciting. So I can't share all of them right now, but but I can touch on with the Amazon Prime it's going to be two different things where squash TV is its own product and you can buy on Amazon prime too. And so you have to pick either or buy both and where this will be uh, ultimately squash TV is going to be for your hardcore fan, premium quality, premium. I'm sorry, all these premium features. Like you want more behind the scenes. You want more X versus examples of Amazon prime or uh, other solutions coming out that would just make it, Hey, Oh, I can easily tune in and this is easy to watch. So there's a lot more coming and this will be part of what I, what I share along the way, Bill. Ooh, I can't, I, for one, I can't wait, Connor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But no, it's exciting. And I did the same thing when I knew about this. This was actually the U S open was one of the first events soft testing. Okay. And what's been crazy is we're tracking the numbers of squash TV viewership that buys directly and without any advertising bill or even any promotion, it's been crazy the number of people who are purchasing this. Yeah. yeah so no, there, it just shows that there is demand and we haven't even done the full rollout. Which So last PSA TV topic for me, PJ, I'm going to put you on the spot because I did go to the TOC for the weekend and did see a lot of matches, but I consumed most of it online on, on Squash TV. The announcers. Do you, PJ, 
have a choice of who you do matches with? Are you guys just assigned matches before the day starts? How does that work? And I ask, and I don't want to throw anybody on the, under the bus because you guys are all really good at it. And separately, you're all really good at it, but you can tell. So when you do it with Ashling, it's awesome. When you do it with Lisa, it's awesome. When Le- Joey does it with Lisa, it's awesome. When Joey does it with Ashling, it's awesome. When Lisa and Ashling do it together, it's not awesome. I'm going to be oh. frank. It just is not. And, and I don't want to be mean or anything. So who makes those calls? Who makes those decisions? Because there's a, some awful big matches that had Lisa and Ashling on them that kind of fell flat because of it. Yeah. it's we, I mean, we obviously, we're privy to, to quite a bit of feedback and we get plenty of priorities and we get plenty of complaints as well. It's all, it's all done by the producer of the event at that particular time for this one it was a guy called Thomas Dwyer he's a guy that's it's a relatively new role for him he's been involved with squash tv for probably 10 years and he's worked his way up and now he's more of a director sorry more of a director's role so he is the person who decides what matches will be commentated by what pairings he tries his best to have as much diversity and mixed groups as possible obviously in today's environment you need to give as much variation as you possibly can and he's that's his goal to try and do that do you that's know why, you, that's what a I'm, diplomatic answer yeah very dipl- very diplomatic can you tell him not to put ashling and lisa together anymore is that a, do you have that ability i have the ability to pass on your words but make sure that he doesn't shoot the messenger yeah i'll, I'll Fair do enough. that i can do that I, yeah, I appreciate it because I miss you and Joe. I miss you and Joey together. And that them, I just mostly just want to see that. So anything pales. What I mean to say is everything else pales in comparison. Yeah, listen, I lo- I, I enjoy working with any of the crew there with uh, Ashlyn, with Lisa, but Joey and I have got a, a chemistry that's been built over twelve years. I speak with Joey on a daily basis outside of the commentary as well. So we're like best buddies. So. There is a natural gel when I'm in the commentary box with him. And if I had a preference, if I had a choice, then I would like to refer, then I'd like to commentate with Joey as much as I can. But I also really enjoy what Lisa brings to the show and Ashlyn too. And I think they're both very good and insightful and, and their knowledge is also growing. They haven't been doing it that long, but they're catching up really quick and they're a massive addition to the team. For sure. And Ashling's enthusiasm in this event was showed, shown through. She was really lent some drama to the matches, like more so than she has in the past. So I appreciated it. Um, yeah, I think a lot of that, though, Bill, is because now we're starting to, to do a few more events together. There's a good bond mm-hmm. amongst the group. There's a good team camaraderie. The After the matches, we'll go and socialize together. So it's, it is much more of a family environment. And that with that comes a level of comfort and confidence. I'm also partial. I'm also partial towards the, the Irish accent us uh, with the, my roots. It's, it's very that poetic. Is, that is true. Joey aside, if you had to choose between to do a match with Ashling or Lisa, who would you choose PJ? We'd have to do a three way commentary. It'd have to be the three of us. I have no preference <laughs> there. Yeah. I like them both equally. Remember PJ who used to stand up and say what he felt. Remember that? I missed that PJ actually. I think he is saying that. Right? <laughs> They're both great. There you They're go. Both great. Lisa is exceptional at doing the Envision stuff at the beginning of the shows and in between yes. the games. And she's very articulate there, yes. as is Ashlyn. The thing is, what's, what makes that part of the show quite challenging is we'll have rehearsals before and they'll be talk, they'll, we'll be discussing certain topics and it's Joey's goal to ask you certain questions to lead into certain pieces that will come up on the screen. But Joey's questions change. So the rehearsals are a complete waste of time because what he will preempt you for in the live show is never the same as what goes on in rehearsal. So he might ask you, for example, <laughs> PJ, what, do you, what is it that, about this event that makes it good for the players? And then when it comes in, when you come to Envision, he's like, so PJ, how is this event going to be an addition? How does it help our Olympic case? <laughs> <laughs> and you're just you're literally you, just caught completely out of left field. I I know that that happens, and it really is such a skill that you guys have. Because on this podcast, I don't know, I don't know why it's different. Just is I couldn't do what you guys do at all. So it's I, I look at it just with those kind of curveball questions and how you guys keep the crowd entertained. It really yeah. is a skill. You have to try and think on your feet. And listen, 
I'm not blowing our own trumpet, but I'm going to give some credit to the team because none of us have had any media training. This has all come mm-hmm. off of, I was a former player, Joey also. We're all former squash players. None of us have any kind of background in journalism or any experience in that field. So for us to be doing what we're doing, it's, listen, it's not a massively high level, but it's not the dregs either. I think we do a pretty, pretty reasonable job. Considering. I would say, I agree. You guys do a pretty reasonable job. I do agree yeah. with that. So. Yeah, Thanks, and that's Bill. just Bill trying to be like, when is he getting his shots? Anyway, all right. Exactly. What else we got? What else we got? Coming up, obviously, we have the there's a gold tournament down in Houston in a couple of weeks. So one of the unusual gold events that's men only. So a lot of the PSA events now, almost all of them actually, on, when the gold and plat on the gold and platinum level are men and women. So it's like almost a dinosaur on the tour right now. So we have Houston coming up. Unfortunately, we will not get a an assault. Marwan Al Shabagi redux of last year's controversial match because Marwan has chosen not to play in that event. But otherwise, the Houston event's pretty solid with Rog, um, Al Shabagi, Asal, Gawad, Mazin, Tarek, all the big names playing down there. Gawad back, which is nice to see. So hopefully he hasn't withdrawn from that event yet. And I don't know if the withdrawal date has passed because we I know he's coming back from yet another injury. So hopefully he'll be back in good form. But that pretends to be a very good event. Then right back to back. So Houston ends on a Sunday on Wednesday, the Windy City Open starts. So that is and Bill, Bill, can we also just say, yes, we know this is tough on the promote on the players, but who else is it tough on? So I think for the first time in the history of squash, and I've looked back, like back to any, I know, you know how PGA likes to hearken back to the old days of the cons and the Marshalls and the Del Harris's. And he talks to us like while we roll our eyes. You mean the best players of all time? <laughs> them, yes, them. <laughs> yeah. So I look, back, I look back and what I noticed that not once has an MC gone from a gold level tournament in which they're going to do. And this isn't going to be like emceeing where you're sharing the emceeing where Nicole Bunyan comes in and does a couple matches. And this person comes in and does Joey does a couple matches. No, an MC actually for the first time in history, the PSA is going to do a gold event, wake up in the morning after that gold event, get on a plane, fly to Chicago and do a platinum event in which he's going to interview 68 people and do 68 on court announcements. So just heroic. No, not heroic, but it's going to be a grind. Bill, Are you here, gonna be- here is your perfect platform to get some controversial answers out of the players. Are you going to be seeing any like Paul Cole-like changes or maybe in the mirror too, training too hard in the mirror that morning and suddenly you're at, your throat is messed up? What are, you, well, what are we doing I, here? Connor, that is a great question because during the Paul Cole match against Victor Cruan, Joey and PJ talked about how that morning at the hotel, they saw Paul Cole staring in the mirror. Not that was his workout. He was staring in the mirror and like watching his swing. So yes, I am absolutely going to do that. I'm going to stare at the mirror. It's more my hair I'm worried about because right now my hair is perfect. This is my hair is in yeah. showtime, showtime ready. But two weeks from now it might be slightly long. So do I get a haircut yeah. this week? Do I get a haircut the week up? What do I do? No, you get it done now. What, what, you need it. You what, need a little bit of time yeah. to grow out. 100%. To grow out. Okay. It, okay. Yeah. Agreed. Now, how is that going to help or hurt you with name pronunciations? Is that uh, uh, <laughs> the fact that you called it name pronunciations right there tells you how difficult this game really is, Connor? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm a little worried. Houston, I have it all down. I pretty much know everybody in the draw. There's a couple people that might throw me. Chicago's rough. Chicago wants these first round matches for these players who like are ranked 150th in the world and they're playing a platinum tournament and I've never heard of them and their name is spelled TZE or something like that. Yeah, I'm done. I'm cooked. No question about it. <laughs> no question about it. I'm done. I need them to change. We need more tomato hose. Give me, give me more tomato hose in the world, please. Yeah, scared, a little scared, Connor. But I appreciate you guys worrying about me. And PJ, PJ, yeah, this is heroic. Even this is where the training's really going to come. This is where the training goes in. And PJ said he would go out to dinner. So PJ and I have never gone out to dinner in all the tournaments we have been together at, and all the promises he's made. Yeah, let's get together. I was going to say, but how many potential dinners? One, just one. I just want one. I texted PJ right after GCT and said, "Hey, I'm going to be in Chicago on this date. Do you want to do dinner the night before the tournament starts?" He yeah. said, well, no, that we'll should see. be good. That works. That works. All right. All right. We'll we did this it. bit like Chicago and then remember you we'll blew me off and you went out to dinner with Lee Beachell. Just remember that. I'm just for the record. It, the moment your fork goes anywhere near my plate to sample any of my food with I'm walking out. I'm literally getting up and walking out the restaurant. I, so don't I be think trying. you can stab his hand with the fork. <laughs> exactly. Don't worry. All right, yeah. boys. Anything else? No, I think well, that's, that's it. Go on. 
Any other college squash stuff? Or uh... I think we should wait. Connor, what do you think about another recording this week? And we talk about what happened. Because th- today's the day, right? Penn, Penn Harvard kicks off in three minutes. And yeah. we'll know. We'll have a good picture of the college landscape after this match. I'm thinking, and I don't want to jinx Gilly. If Gilly hears this, he's going to crush me. Because I did tell him last night that Harvard was going to beat him 9-love. But that was a reverse jinx. I think I think Penn's going to win 8-1. to one. I think they're gonna. I think they're gonna stomp on their throat, and it's gonna oh, be the man. end of the Harvard wow. dominance for this year. The, where this can prediction. we watch this, Bill? Well, Sorry, where can we watch it? I'm gonna Amazon Prime. On Amazon Prime. <laughs> they don't. They're not. They're not advertising it because they don't want people to watch. But yeah, no, I'm assuming you could watch it on streaming on the Pen Courts, but you could also follow it on Club Locker Live. Brilliant. The, there for the scores. Yeah. The but what this does is setting up is really exciting for. College is really in contention going into the national championships. Two undefeated right now with Trinity, 10-0, like you said, Penn, 10-0. Princeton also undefeated, 6-0. Harvard, 6-2. And And falling from being the number one coming into the season. So it's going to be interesting to see, are they just playing, what is it, like possum, and then come national champions, national championships? So Penn has Harvard today, and then next week they're looking at Princeton and and Trinity. So those will be interesting matches that Penn – steps up and beats all of those teams going in. They are the prohibitive favorite, right, for the championship. Yeah. So yeah. all we'll tell in time. That was also, I should say, on the men's side, but on the women's side, Trinity also undefeated 7-0 and and Penn undefeated. Yep, so Penn-Harvard today. So that would be another test, a huge test. It's rare that Har- – so Trinity beat Harvard's both men and women last week. That's a rare occurrence when both the men and women lose on the same day. See if it could happen again today Today at the at the University of Penn Courts. Yeah, more to come. Great. All right, guys. That was a, nice to see you, PJ. It was great to see you in been, New York. It's been emotional. I will make a reservation, PJ, for Tuesday night in Chicago at a semi-upscale restaurant. I'll leave it to you. All right. I appreciate it. Look forward to it. See you guys. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.